History Does You is a podcast that explores the idea that history is always relevant to today. We also cover topics in current events, foreign policy, and international relations. Through interviews with experts in the field of history, government, foreign policy, and many other fields, we answer the question, how is history relevant today? From early empires to modern relations, we look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, and broader perspectives of listeners to understand how important history is to understanding our world. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be talking about the geopolitics of the Arctic, and we had an interview with former State Department employee, Michael Young. But before we get to that, we'll be talking about the Arctic exploration and the history of how the Arctic became what it is today. And to begin, really, and to understand kind of the Arctic in the context of the geopolitics of today, you probably have to go all the way back to really when the Arctic was first discovered. And it's believed that the Arctic was discovered as early as ancient Greece. There was a man named Pythias who was alive around the era of Aristotle and Alexander the Great. It was around 325 BC that it was believed he went on an exploration that reached what is the British Isles today. And he sort of documented how he eventually pushed farther north. It was stated that after six days of sailing, he eventually reached at the end what he called a frozen sea. Now, based on what he was describing some scholars believe that it was in fact the Arctic that he reached it. And to understand sort of the path that he followed, most explorers of the time really tried to hug the land as much as possible. And that's really so that they could land, they wouldn't get caught in open sea, they could get food, all of that. So, and no one's really sure that Pythias actually reached the Arctic. Some believe that it's really just fantasy, but I think that's probably one of the earliest times that sort of the Arctic is discovered in contemporary history. The next sort of group of people that begin to at least explore the Arctic or engage in the Arctic was the Vikings. Obviously, they were also the first to sort of discover North America from Europe. And the Vikings were heavily involved, not just in Britain, but along the Nordic, modern Nordic countries, that sort of region. They are believed to have explored some of the original northern sea routes, as well as some of the areas around Siberia, the coastline there. I was believed the Cossack named Semyon Desnoyev eventually open what is now the famous Bering Strait between America and Asia. There's also plenty of Russian settlers in the 16th and 17th century that kind of settled along the coasts of kind of the Arctic. Modern day Russia has the most coastline along the Arctic Sea. So that's why it really is early as the 16th and 17th century that Russia began to influence the Arctic and establish trade posts and maritime routes throughout the region. Now, there's two other critical things that go on, and that's specifically the exploration of both the Northwest and the Northeast Passage. The British Empire at the time had heavily invested in trying to find these passages. And to kind of get to Asia via North America, South America, you had to go to the bottom of South America, which I believe is the Magnola Strait, who was discovered by the Portuguese explorer that first went and discovered Asia from that direction. What the British tried to do was find a more northerly route through the Arctic Sea or along the coastlines. Eventually, I would see the Panama Canal open, but before that, you would have to go all the way to the bottom or you would have to go all the way to the top, which was very difficult. Obviously, at the Arctic Sea, most of it had been frozen and there wasn't necessarily a huge amount of real estate to work with. So that was really part of a lot of the exploration of the Arctic was these British naval and Dutch East India company ships that, you know, sailed up the Hudson River and sailed to the Hudson Bay 
all of that, all attempting to try and find these passages through the what is now Canada and the Arctic in order to try and find these different routes. And that's kind of really what the exploration of the Arctic entails. If you look over the next 200, 300 years, people didn't necessarily try and claim or do a whole lot. But if we see in the last 20 years, really, with climate change, it's rapidly shifted the geopolitics of sort of the Arctic and the way that we view it. Maritime routes are staying open for much longer. There is much more naval activity. And the Arctic isn't necessarily a sort of Wild West, as Mr. Young will explain, but it's really sort of all these different geopolitical opponents that have different claims in the region. But there's all these different resources that have, haven't been discovered yet. So it's all these sorts of problems that are going to have to be dealt with. And this is sort of the first episode that we sort of delve into the geopolitical aspects of a certain region, but I also want to integrate historical perspective as much as possible. I think that's important. So I'm pretty excited for this interview. It's super cool. Of course, this was the first one I did over Zoom, so it was a little bit shaky. I apologize for that. And of course, I forgot to start recording only after I read his intro. So I'll read it for you. And I was asking him about his initial experience in the State Department, how he became interested in the Arctic. So I hope you enjoy that. But just before I'll read you his resume, it's pretty awesome. Mr. Young, he's a retired Foreign Service Officer with the U.S. Department of State. His most recent tour was as the Foreign Policy Advisor to Commander Special Operations Command North in Colorado Springs, Colorado, with a focus on Arctic security. He earlier served as the Arctic Affairs Officer in the Office of Oceans and Polar Affairs and was the Senior Arctic Official. In this role, he was also the U.S. Head of Delegation for the Sustainable Development Working Group on the Arctic Council. He's one of the key architects of the Arctic Council program during the U.S. Chairmanship from 2015 to 2017. His other assignments as a foreign service officer included tours in Kabul, Mexico City, and Toronto. Before he joined the foreign service, he was an officer in the U.S. Navy for 15 years, where he did shipboard tours on the USS Truxton and USS Chandler. He's a native of Golden, Colorado, and he graduated from the Colorado School of Mines with a BS in engineering physics and an MBA from the University of Colorado Boulder. So that's just a little background in him, and I hope you really enjoy this interview. So I've always been interested in the explorers, especially Arctic and Antarctic exploration, even from before I joined the Navy. And then when the opportunity came up for me to take the position in the Office of Ocean and Polar Affairs as the Arctic Affairs Officer, I thought it was too good to be true. So I joined that and learned an incredible amount about the Arctic in those two years during that tour. And so much so that I decided to continue my interest in it in subsequent tours and even after retiring from the Foreign Service. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching foreign policy or in your various positions conducting policy in the Arctic? So probably the biggest challenge is in dealing with Arctic policy is in the last 10 to 15 years, especially then even more so recently in the last five years, there's been a dramatic increase in interest in the Arctic, especially by the, uh, the media as the effects from climate change have decreased the amount of sea ice in the Arctic, opening up maritime routes or making them more feasible for longer periods of time during the year. And that brings with it, that attention that is brought with it has brought a narrative oftentimes by the media that's not quite in line with reality, just because the nuances and everything don't make as good of a story of saying that there's a new Wild West or rush for resources in the Arctic, there's new geopolitical posturing and fight for contested territory, all that, which is not actually true. And so always having to push back on that narrative and explain the realities of that there are no 
areas of, or very few areas that are contested in the Arctic. All the, the land is actually sovereign territory. It's not an international commons area like some entities like China would try and portray it to be. And so pushing back against that narrative of the things, the, the way the media portrays it as being rushed resources is not true. That's been the biggest challenge, I think. And to get some of the ongoing issues into the Arctic, what are they and what countries are kind of currently involved in the region? So you have the eight Arctic states that actually that have territory above the Arctic Circle, and those are the ones who are the member states of the Arctic Council, too. So you've got the U.S., Canada, Russia, and then the Nordic states. So Iceland, Finland, Sweden, Norway, and then Denmark through it, the Kingdom of Denmark through its ownership of Greenland. And is the situation more complicated, or is you kind of explaining with this idea of different territorial claims, or is it all sort of a sovereign claims throughout kind of the Arctic. So here's where the narrative gets its kind of origin, that there's overlapping claims, that there are claims that aren't, haven't been adjudicated or something like that. And it's through a process called Extended Continental Shelf Claims. That's a section under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, whereby you can claim sovereign rights to the seabed floor and the resources below the seabed floor, so like oil and gas mainly, or on the seabed floor, like manganese modules or other things for mining. Beyond 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone that countries already have. So when you have a piece of land or territory, a country gets rights to the exclusive economic zone. It goes 200 nautical miles out from the land-sea border or boundary. And that gives you rights to all the pelagic resources, which are the resources in the water column, mainly fishing, and everything in the seabed floor and below. So think oil and gas mainly. If you file an ECS claim, or if you make an ECS claim, you can and show that the geography and the geology is favorable and meets the conditions under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, you can say that the part beyond that is really part of our continental shelf and we have rights to the seabed floor and below. Now, in order to make that claim, you file a submission with the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, which is a body under the UN. All they do is a commission that evaluates the validity of the data you present for the geology of the area. And if they say, yes, this makes sense, you have a valid claim to it, then your claim has been adjudicated as well. If there's an overlapping claim with another country that's nearby, the CLCS doesn't have any role in adjudicating, you know, whose claim is better or whose claim, you know, takes priority or anything like that. It's left to the two or maybe even three states that have overlapping claims to resolve that boundary themselves. And this is one of the things that got a lot of media attention. You've got three countries basically claiming the North Pole, which is mainly for symbolic interest. So you've got the Kingdom of Denmark claiming it, saying that Greenland has, you know, their extended continental shelf extends far enough that it would include the North Pole. You have Canada and you have Russia also claiming the same thing. So that's more posturing and symbolic than anything. There's not a particular resource at the North Pole, but all those three countries, you know, have made a point of including, in fact, Canada when they claimed it. It was definitely a political claim as opposed to an actual geological or geographic claim because their claim had the line went up and then it had a little line that went a circle that went around to include the North Pole. And you just know that it had to have been their politicians at the time said, wait a minute, our claim doesn't include the North Pole. Of course it includes the North Pole. And as if to prove that when they made their claim, uh, when they submitted their claim at the same time, Canada did a little bit of a publicity stunt where they issued Santa Claus a Canadian passport. <laughs> 
And to follow up, can you kind of explain what the Arctic Council is and what their role is in the region? So the Arctic Council is an intergovernmental forum. The members are the eight Arctic states, as I mentioned before. You've got six permanent participants, which are the indigenous groups that represent the various indigenous organizations around the Arctic. And then you have observers. And the observers can be a nation state. They can be an intergovernmental organization, such as the International Maritime Organization, or they can be a non-governmental organization. And there's many different observers, both in those three categories. The role that the Arctic Council has in the Arctic is it's mainly to focus on scientific research and cooperation and sharing results and figuring out shared priorities. It specifically excludes any national security discussions or interests, so that because it was seen when it was started in 1996 that that if you brought that into it, it would markedly change the nature of cooperation of the, the Arctic Council. So they wanted to keep it focused on scientific research and cooperation. There are six working groups that comprise that are the Arctic Council. Some of them predated the Arctic Council itself, such as the AMAP, which is one of the working groups, but others were formed as part of the Arctic Council. And they're the ones who do the actual work of the Arctic Council. The nation states, they meet several times a year. Every two years, you switch chairmanships. So one country has the chairmanship for two years, then it's rotates to another country in a predestined fashion or preordained fashion as to you know which country will be next. The chairmanship doesn't give the the country who has it any extra power. It, it just gives them more of a role kind of in setting the agenda for the next two years. It has to be agreed on by all the other Arctic states too as to what they're going to work on. There's no formal voting. It's on a consensus basis, so you don't take formal votes. It's basically just everyone agrees to do something. If any one country wants to disagree with it or strongly opposes it and says, no, I don't think that should go ahead, then it won't go ahead because you wouldn't have consensus if even just one member state disagrees. So you kind of have a de facto veto power, but there's no actual formal voting. Arctic Council has been mentioned in by some academics as a part of what constitutes Arctic governance, which in a loose sense is true in that you have eight member states cooperating together on shared issues. But as far as the hard governance, there's no regulations, laws, binding agreements that the Arctic states make under the auspices of the Arctic Council. The binding agreements that have been talked about in the Arctic Council and then agreed upon by the Arctic states are done by the eight Arctic states outside of the Arctic Council itself, even though the agreement was built within the Arctic Council. So there's one on search and rescue, there's one on oil spill prevention, and there's one on scientific cooperation. So it's a bit of a technicality, but it's kind of an important thing because if you're part of an international organization as opposed to an intergovernmental forum, you've all agreed that whatever that org international organization decides within the, the bounds of the, the voting rules and everything, that you'll abide by that decision. And there's actual, you know, it's enforceable. So like the UN, you know, it's a Security Council resolution. So if everyone agrees to it, then it, it goes forward. And it's enforceable as international law. In the Arctic Council, that's not the case. So there aren't regulations or laws or anything that are determined by the Arctic Councils. It's a consensus-based intergovernmental forum that helps coordinate procedure and policies across the region in the common interest of all the countries. And is the Arctic becoming more militarized as a result of increasing maritime activity in the region and more nations kind of becoming involved in the region? So there's a couple parts to that question. So to answer the first part of it, yes, there is more military activity happening in the Arctic. The Russians have have 
increase their military presence in the Arctic, reactivating some of their bases from pre or from the Cold War days. So, you know, Soviet Union time when they had several bases up in the Arctic that had been, after the Cold War had been abandoned or shut down. They've reactivated several of those. The reasons for that have ostensibly been, or what Russia has stated that for, is protecting the Northern Sea Route, which is the maritime route that goes across the top of Russia through the Arctic Ocean from Europe to Asia and Asia to Europe. So it makes sense why Russia would put extra assets there to be able to protect the shipping lanes for search and rescue purposes and logistics purposes, you know, not necessarily military purposes, but some of the assets that Russia has put in those Arctic posts now are not consistent with simply protecting on a search and rescue basis the shipping route. They're much more militarily defensive as if somebody would try and keep shipping going it from along that route and then Russia would be able to protect it and keep assets from doing that, which makes you wonder, well, like, why would Russia feel a threat of any military presence coming in and denying their northern sea route? But that's how they proceed. And the Northern Sea Route is very important to Russia. In fact, the, the Arctic Ocean is more important to Russia than any other country. When you look at it, when you look at a map of the Arctic that's centered on the North Pole and looking down over the Arctic Ocean, you see all the countries that border the Arctic Ocean. You can see that Russia comprises much more of the Arctic Ocean than any other country. And when you look at geographically the rivers in Russia, there's many rivers in Russia that flow from inland north into the Arctic Ocean. And those are navigable rivers like the Lena and the Ob rivers, and Russia uses them for transport, just like the United States uses the Mississippi River out to the Gulf of Mexico for further ocean-going transport. And the Soviet Union back into the 1930s had used that route for the same reasons. And so it's getting more use today. It's starting to get more use today as a transshipment route, meaning before that, like in the Soviet times and even, you know, up till probably five to 10 years ago, most of the traffic on the Northern Sea Art was called destinational shipping traffic. It was going to ports or going in, you know, into Russia and things out of Russia. You've got some transshipment or trans-Arctic routes going where something might originate in Germany, go up over the, through the Northern Sea Route, further delivery to China or Japan or, or South Korea, something and vice versa. You have a lot of shipping traffic originating in Russia for like LNG shipments going from the Yamal Peninsula over to China through ice-hardened LNG tankers. But that, that's really still a transshipment. That's not really destinational, even though it's originating in Russia. But the amount of traffic on the Northern Sea Route has increased a lot, and it's very important to Russia economically. And are the Nordic countries of Finland, Norway, Iceland, Denmark, and Sweden heavily involved in the region? And does the U.S. work closely with them on different policy goals? So the Nordic countries are, are very involved in part of the t their territories in the Arctic, so they're obviously involved in that. Norway is very involved in the Barents Sea for oil and gas exploration and development. The other Arctic or the, the Nordic countries have large fishing concerns that extend up into the, the Arctic, Norway, Iceland, to Sweden and Finland are actually landlocked from the Arctic Ocean because Norway extends all the way up along the northern coast of Norway and then actually borders Russia a little bit. So Sweden and Finland don't touch the Arctic Ocean. In order for them to get there, they have to go out through the Baltic. 
but all of the countries are very involved through the Arctic Council and other ways through Arctic research. The U.S. and Canada work closely with them, you know, and with Russia too, even on things. But, you know, the Nordics are, are very involved in, in Arctic research. And then Norway administers Svalbard, which is the archipelago up in the Arctic. And to kind of get into China and their role in the Arctic, my first question is, is China's interest in the region more recent or is it something that has been developing over, you know, the last couple of years or even before? So I'm not a China expert, but I, my knowledge of China in the Arctic comes from my time on the Arctic Council and dealing with them. And China obtained observer status in the Arctic Council in 2013, in May of 2013. And in order to have obtained observer status, one of the things they had to commit to was recognizing the sovereignty of all of the Arctic states in the Arctic, which you know, they said they did. Since then, especially since 2018, when China came out with its white paper on what their Arctic policy was, you know, and more recently too, you know, they've been making noise as if they don't believe that the Arctic is a regional sea that's mainly of interest to the countries that have territory and around it. They're trying to promote this narrative that the Arctic is a international commons, much like Antarctica is kind of treated, but it's very different. It's apples and oranges. Antarctica is a continent surrounded by oceans. The Arctic is an ocean surrounded by continents. And all of the sovereignty issues in the Arctic are well-defined and recognized through international law. There's no unclaimed areas that somebody can go in and exploit like China saying, oh, look, nobody has this land or nobody's claiming this land or claiming this right. China's trying to, some academics have, have looked at China's role and thinks that China does intend to claim sovereign rights in the Arctic. But I just don't see how that could happen under current international law other than China going, you know, way against international. And the countries that have those sovereign claims and rights now wouldn't stand for that. But China has been exerting a lot of economic influence in the Arctic region, building up to that and doing research there as a way to influence it too. As far as what their ultimate long-term goals are, other than economic, I don't really know what those are or if China even knows what those are because that large barrier, like I said, of you know, all the sovereign rights are, are well established and claimed and defined in the Arctic. And generally, um, what kind of has been the U.S. policy in the Arctic and are we kind of seeing a change as a result of renewed Chinese interest in the region? So the U.S. has had a long time involvement in the Arctic ever since its uh, purchase of Alaska, the Alaska Territory from Russia, you know, back in the 1860s. And even before that, with the whaling ships that would go up there, and then once it was U.S. territory, the U.S. Revenue Cutters, as predecessor of the Coast Guard, has operated up there for a long time. And the U.S. had a large military presence in Alaska during World War II and after World War II. During World War II, it was mainly along the Aleutians, where we actually fought battles against the Japanese on the Aleutian islands. And then after World War II, during the Cold War, since the shortest route for ICBMs and bombers is over the pole, both for us and for the Soviets at the time. And so the defense early warning system, the radar system was, you know, built along Alaska and Canada of the pole to see if to detect both ICBMs and bombers coming in from the Soviet Union. But after the end of the Cold War, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, the U.S. military presence, especially in the Arctic, diminished quite a bit. And it's picked up a lot more in the last eight years or so. You know, but with so many other commitments around the world that the U.S. has, even though we might have an interest in the Arctic, the 
amount of money that, and resources that we've dedicated to capturing that interest has not followed. So as an example of that, the US right now really has only two icebreakers, the Polar Star and the Healy. The Polar Star is a heavy icebreaker and the Healy is a medium, it's classified as a medium icebreaker. And the Polar Star also has duty of breaking out McMurdo Sound in Antarctica you know, every summer, every, you know, Southern Hemisphere summer. And so that keeps the stretch pretty thin. The Canadians have more icebreakers, but still just a handful. The Russians have, I think, upwards of 40 icebreakers, actual icebreakers, and many ice-hardened, ice-capable ships, either LNG tankers or military patrol craft or other ones. But again, when you look at the Russian coastline, it makes sense that they would have many more than we do. We should have more than we do, but we don't have an effective uh, surface Navy presence or even Coast Guard, you know, using the Coast Guard as a proxy for surface Navy presence in the Arctic. And that means our maritime awareness of what's happening in the Arctic Ocean, even just around Alaska up in the far north, you know, is not as good as, as it should be. We're getting better there, but the Coast Guard now has under procurement at least one icebreaker, and they're looking at, at more. Those won't be ready for another few years. They won't be in service for another few years. China's involvement in the Arctic has definitely got the U.S. interest, uh, the attention of the U.S. and the U.S. Well, they, you know, well, the U.S. might not like China's involvement in the Arctic. Most of China's involvement in the Arctic is with the Russians, and so that's a bilateral affair between China and Russia. The U.S. can not like it all at once, but it doesn't really have any power to do anything about it. Most of those arrangements with Russia are through the export of liquefied natural gas from the Yamal Peninsula on Russia and their gas fields there to China. China's also looked at doing shipping both cargo vessels and container ships across the northern sea route to Europe and that, which is technically feasible and they've proven that they can do it. Uh, economically, it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet. It, it might get closer to that in, in the future, the more the season is open and stuff. But China's presence in the Arctic with the Russians is not driving U.S. Uh, involvement in the Arctic. I'd say if anything is driving renewed U.S. interest in the Arctic, it's the fact that Russia has been doing more military activity in the Arctic and causing the, the U.S. to want to respond in, in kind. And so the U.S. has mainly on the European side of the Arctic through exercises with NATO and sending U.S. Navy ships up in above the Arctic Circle for the first time, in some cases in you know over 20 years. And kind of follow up on China-Russian relations in the region, do you think that this cooperation is going to continue over the next couple of years, or do you think that China is eventually going to grow and do kind of a power where it can kind of dictate policy both of Russia and other states that are involved in the Arctic? So China needs Russia or other Arctic states in order to be involved in the Arctic because that's how they get their entry into the Arctic is by cooperating with or partnering with a country that has sovereign territory in the Arctic. And to kind of get into some listener questions that have been asked, first one is who has the most political power in the Arctic and why? So I would say Russia because they have the largest monetary line uh, and therefore economic both influence and skin in the game in the Arctic economically. And sometimes, the, so but because it is geopolitically in the world, a lot of times they, uh, especially after the invasion of Crimea in 18, and a lot of times at council meetings, Russia is the one that you have to convince. The other seven might be on the same page with things, especially 
with you know like climate change and black carbon and that and it's Russia's the one you had to bring along the last couple of years that's changed a bit and that the US has been the outlier <laughs> especially on climate change you know not wanting to address that or being even in denial about climate change which is a you know marked departure from the past 20 years of the Arctic Council but <laughs> I'd say Russia has the most to gain and to lose in the Arctic, and therefore they're the ones who have the most power in the Arctic. Okay, awesome. And another question is, do you think the U.S. needs to be doing more in the Arctic, or is the, you know, the current policy enough? So <laughs> this is a, it's a, a domestic political question more than anything, I think, the U.S. should be doing. So the Alaskan congressional delegations and governors and that you know they're always pushing to have more the u.s be more involved and a lot of times involvement for involvement's sake because involvement you know seen as translating into money and more invested by the federal government in in alaska definitely legitimate u.s interest in the arctic and the u.s and should be doing more but it's a matter of resources you know constrained resources and what you can do there's no shortage of ideas that Alaskans have as to what some Alaskans have as to what you know, can be happening in the Arctic, whether developing natural gas fields off, you know, on the north north slope and building a natural gas pipeline similar to the Trans-Alaskan pipeline system that pumps oil from Prudhoe Bay down to, you know, Prince William Sound. But there are good ways of, of helping the Arctic, and there are not so good ways. But anything in the Arctic, because of the church on those it costs a lot of money. Russia's spending that money and doing it. But again, we talked about Russia has a lot riding on the Arctic. You know, it's hugely important to Russia, much more so than it is to the United States. Or I would argue even even Alaska. You look at Alaska whole and look at the Arctic part of it versus the non-Arctic part. So the question, you know, should we build a deep water port in Nome or some other part that would cost hundreds of millions of dollars at least, maybe more? If we build it and we're doing, you know, what's the purpose of it? So you have transship, you know, you have shipping going through the Bering Strait, going up around either the Northern Sea Route or up through the Northwest Passage, you know, through the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. What's the purpose of that port in Nome? Is it acting as a transient port where non-ice-hardened vessels would drop goods off there for further transfer to ice-hardened vessels or vessels, you know, that would go with icebreaker escorts? from Nome then to another place and that gives Nome a piece in the game, you know, to be able to play and add value. It's like, hey, that makes sense. But Russia's vying for that thing and Russia controls the entire Northern Sea Route, which is the most viable route now and was as well traffic in the Northwest Passage. Why would Russia want any vessels going, you know, the Bering Strait or near the Bering Strait on that route? They wouldn't. So how much, and Russia sets the terms now through the Northern Sea Route Administration as far as the rules that vessels have to follow going along that route. So, you know, I think these are questions that, where you need to pull the thread more to say, other than just saying we want a deep water port in Nome so that we have a deep water port close to the Arctic. Coast Guard vessels could be based out of there and have quicker access than they do now, you know, Dutch Harbor. And, and that's all true. But what's your bang for your buck? You know, what benefit are you getting based on the amount of money you're going to have to spend? And it's going to have to be subsidized by the federal government because of the cost. And so then federal priority is being met by having an interest place and, and paying for it. And I don't think in my mind, the answers to those questions have not been adequately answered yet. And another listener question is, what sorts of security concerns do you see in the Arctic? 
So the security concerns in the Arctic from a U.S. perspective are the same ones that we've had from during the Cold War. It's still important to have a defense early warning system. It's important to have forward-based fighter jets and bombers and, you know, in Alaska to be able to carry out the same missions they've, they've had. The increase of Russian military presence and, and activity in the Arctic does require a counter-response from some of the increased U.S. and NATO activities you know, naval vessels, I think is, you know, is a good thing. U.S. Marines training with the Norwegian, which have been doing for years, continuing to do those at large scale. Arctic land is a good thing because it gets U.S. forces training in Arctic environment, Arctic methods of operating, and that's all good stuff. So it is important for the U.S. to maintain a security military presence in the Arctic. One of the things that, that I think we do need, the U.S. does need more of in the Arctic is maritime domain awareness. We have good aerospace domain awareness through, you know, but what we don't have adequately is naval vessels actually being able to go up into the Green Sea and the Chukchi Sea, the Beaufort Sea, and operate. We've, we have group submarine presence in the Arctic that we've had decades and decades, which we're unsurpassed at, and that's great. But the submarines don't have the ability to see what the ship traffic is nearly as well as surface ships do. And the operating procedures that ships would employ, and just the crews being used to operating in uh, waters that are potentially ice-covered, not same with ice breaking or anything like that, sort of could be icebergs and other things, and just extremes of temperature and weather being used what to do. And that we've lost some of that, and we used to have that 30 years ago. And we should act just for our own national security interest from the Navy's perspective. The Navy has talked a lot for the last 10 years that I've been involved with this, wanting to be involved in the Arctic, but they've never really put resources towards developing, say, surface ships that are ice-hardened or ice-capable or, you know, anything like that. The Russians have a much uh, better capability on that front. And another listener question is, how does climate change affect policy in the Arctic? Is it increasing maritime activity as, as a result? Yes, the effects of climate change are reducing the uh, sea ice extent in the Arctic, which are making it more feasible for maritime vessels to operate in the Arctic. So both from the transit ones that we talked about, or the cargo ships, as well as uh, tourist traffic with uh, tourism vessels uh, going up both in the, the European part of the Arctic, the Canadian part of the Arctic, and the US part of the, the Arctic. And with increased ship traffic, and any shipping traffic, but especially tourist shipping traffic, you have the increased likelihood of a humanitarian event where a cruise ship, say, carrying even just a few thousand people, runs into trouble, hits an iceberg, you know, hits some ice, gets damaged, is stranded, you know, and then how do you affect, try and rescue those people? Being logistically so hard to reach, especially with any amount of assets or even the low number of communities that are villages or towns that are on the, especially in the north, along the Northwest Passage, that would you know, and they, if you're even near a village, that village might be just a few hundred people. They don't have the capacity to help a couple thousand stranded tourists that might inundate them with, you know, food and everything else. And so that's the big challenge. So the opening up of, so the effects of climate change have resulted in increased maritime traffic in the Arctic, which will result, have resulted in risk. Fortunately, we haven't had any dramatic either oil spills or stranded cruise ships or anything like that yet. But I think it's just a matter of time. And the final listener question is, if the Arctic Sea Route is open for maritime activity for longer periods of time, then whose security will be at stake and who will be able to gain more security in the region as a result? 
guess I'm trying to figure out what that listener means by security and with it being open large. With the space being not as restrictive to maritime traffic uh, for as longer as long parts of years as it has been and as it is now, that continues to diminish and you have more maritime traffic. It's not so much that security is, is reduced. Well, I'm thinking from a national security perspective. If I think of it from a, let's think of it from a different type of security perspective if you think about it from like a transnational organized crime perspective and so you've got shipping going along that any shipping route is or any transportation route is transnational organized crime can crime can exploit you know to their advantage so the more months of the year that that shipping is going on the, the more months of the year that transnational organized crime can operate using those same uh, routes so i guess that would be an increased uh, security concern you already have a security concern for great circle routes coming from asia going to the west coast of the us they go up through the aleutian islands down because that's the shortest route if you look at you know the great circle routes it seems counterintuitive looking at a mercator projection on the maps that most people are used to but that's the actual route but you can have say stowaways or criminals from asia hopping off of a ship going through the Aleutians, getting onto an island in the Aleutians, and then they're on U.S. territory then, and, and then exploiting stuff that way through drug shipments, money laundering, you know, whatever you want to look at. As they go along the Arctic, you know, it's just another pathway that they could use. And my final question is, what do you think the U.S. role in the Arctic is going to be over the next decade? What types of steps must be taken to both check growing Chinese influence and increasing maritime activity as a result of climate change? U.S. conference with China is the issues that we have when we engage with them or there are, we see them as our adversary. The Arctic, I think, is not the main area. So the Arctic will just be a small background area for U.S.-Chinese competition. That won't be the main ones. Whatever happens in the Arctic between the U.S. and China will take its cue from the bigger picture of what the U.S. and China are laying over the next 10 years. The Arctic won't be driving that. It will just be a result of whatever policies and actions the U.S. and China are taking towards each other in other areas, mainly, you know, trade, even if it's national security or others. So whatever in the South China Sea and how the U.S. responds to that is doing what China does with respect to Taiwan and how the U.S. responds to that, what China does with respect to Hong Kong and how the U.S. responds to that. China could try and do something in the Arctic. But if it's doing something in the U.S. Arctic that's seen as a direct threat or interference in U.S. territory, I think that would be the Chinese wouldn't pursue because that would be too much of a provocation. So we just had that interview with Michael Young. I've always enjoyed kind of interviewing people from the national security and geopolitical sort of side of things because they often do a great job of integrating historical perspective into sort of the geopolitics of different regions and whatnot. And especially in the Arctic, for example, you know, the Arctic represents a, you know, unique place in the context of the globe. Specifically, you know, during the Cold War, for example, where we had tremendous military resources devoted to the region, and whether we see sort of a revival of that because of increasing Chinese influence, because of increasing maritime activity in the Arctic, and all those types of things that I think are going to change both as a result of climate change and as a result of different powers sort of vying for influence in the region. But I think, again, he sort of tackles this myth that 
the Arctic is sort of this wild west where countries are running around laying claim to different things and fighting over resources, all of that. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's different tensions over resources and whatnot. It's still sovereign state. There isn't or not sovereign state, but, you know, there isn't disputed territory where we'll get into a shooting war with Russia over some specific piece of land in the Arctic. And he's he sort of mentioned Russia probably has the most political power in the region and will probably continue to do so until another country like China or maybe even the United States devotes the resources that it truly wants. And I think, especially for the United States, we have so many commitments across the world that it's very difficult to devote you know, the resources that some national security experts probably think we need in the Arctic. It's just we're everywhere all the time. So it makes it very difficult. I mean, it's interesting. Under the Obama administration, there was that sort of pivot from the Europe to the Pacific, which was a sort of new, relatively new concept in the you know U.S. foreign policy. I almost wonder if that same thing could occur you know, over the next couple of decades under a different president in the Arctic if climate change gets to the point where you know there's a bunch of oil up there or other resources that are super important if we'll see that sort of pivot where you know the arctic becomes place and i almost wonder too if like i wonder if the arctic someday could support a ton of people i think that's just one of those things that you know the arctic i think represents the sort of last uninhabited unexplored unknown region really in the world and probably the same for antarctica but you know i think the poles are just interesting places in the context of the globe where we have all these different places occupied by humans and doing all this stuff but antarctica and the arctic really are sort of the last two places where there isn't permanent there isn't a sovereign state there so i mean that'll be an interesting geopolitical region that we should keep our eyes on. Now, again, this is sort of the first episode that we've done about foreign policy. So if you enjoyed this, I liked, again, how we integrate historical context into policy in the region. If you enjoyed this, please give feedback if would prefer to stick to history. That's great. We'll definitely be doing that. But I also wanted to kind of broaden not just history, but also, you know, that sort of foreign policy, international relations, because I think history and those two areas in general really go hand in hand. And history can tell us why states are pursuing the policies that they are in these different regions. So this pretty much will wrap up our first episode of season two. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, feel free to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That's always, you can keep up with upcoming episodes. We'll be keep putting up episodes every Sunday as usual. And as always, this was our first episode that we did listener questions, and it was great. So always feel free to kind of monitor social media to keep up with those polls and feel free to give me input on what I should be asking these professors and experts and whatnot. So awesome. Thank you for listening. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end. And thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.